For those that may be with us for the first time today, this is uh, what we do every week. We have a <laughs> brunch after every service. Let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. It's page 974 in these uh, Bibles that are in your pews. As we look for just a few moments at how some of the preparation God made for the coming of his son. Galatians chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 1 through verse 7. Hear God's word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So ends the the reading of God's holy and inspired word. I want us to look for just a few moments primarily at that that phrase in verse 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Uh, When we think of the preparation of the coming of of the Christ child, of God becoming incarnate in the baby Jesus, we typically think about Mary and Joseph and and the well-known Christmas story. But but I want us to uh, think about for a few minutes what was happening in the world outside of the Jewish community, outside of the Jewish people leading up to his birth. What was God doing to prepare in the fullness of time to prepare for his birth. And uh, our own calendar helps us to uh, have an understanding of some of that. Today is December the 18th. And if you think about why we call December, December, it makes no sense because decem means 10th. And yet it's the 12th month. You think of decem, you think of decimal, you think of decade. So why would you call uh, a month 10 when it's the 12th month? Well, let me explain. The ancient Roman calendar was set up in 713 B.C., so a long time ago, 713 B.C., and and they started with March. And the reason they started with March is because the 60 days leading up to March were so bleak and so miserable, they would not even name that time period. Uh, So they started with March, named after the god Mars. And then came April, named after Aprilis. May was named after the goddess of fertility. June, after Juno, the patron goddess of marriage. That's why there's so many weddings, I guess, in June. And then they ran out of names, so they named the next month Quintilis, which is fifth, Sextilis, which is sixth, and September, which is 7th, and October, Octo is 8th, Novum is 9th for November, and then they said December is the 10th month. Now, that's what the calendar was like before 713 B.C., and then there came a king named Numa Pompilius. You better believe I'm looking at my notes for that one. 
And supposedly, uh, this king developed a new calendar, and it had 355 days in it. And he decided to call the first period of the year January, after Janus, god of the doorway, because this opened the doorway to the new year. And then in this next period, they had a purification festival, and the purification is Febru-um, so they named that month February. So that's how we got those names, 355 days according to that calendar, but it, it really didn't work with that many days in it. So centuries later, in 46 B.C., Julius Caesar decided to make the calendar more accurate, and he came up with or, or uh, revised that calendar from Numa Pompilius, and he came up with a calendar that had 365.25 days in it, and that was called the Julian calendar. The Julius Caesar, if you know anything about him, he was a Roman. He, he did not like the idea of a republic. He wanted, uh, he wanted basically an empire that was ruled by a dictator, and so he began a civil war, and which he won, and afterwards he declared himself dictator in perpetuity. He would be the monarch. He would be the king. He would be the head over all of Rome, over all of its territories, and that was in 49 B.C. That's very important, 49 B.C. But something happened just five years later on March the 15th of 44 B.C. What happened? Julius Caesar, Caesar was assassinated murdered by some of the senators led by Cassius and Brutus. They did not want a dictatorship. They wanted a republic, and they thought this would be the end of it now that Julius Caesar was dead. They thought they would take over, set up a republic with representatives which had been elected by the people. But there was a problem, and the problem was that Julius Caesar had written a will, and he had left everything to his heir. Now, Mark Anthony was hoping he was the heir, but when the will was read, the heir was 18-year-old Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, Octavian for short. Julius Caesar had adopted him. He was actually his great nephew, but Julius Caesar had adopted him as his son, and so he wills him the empire. Well, Cassius and Brutus did not take kindly to that, so they decided they would round up an army and some troops and fight, and they did. And Mark Anthony sided with Octavian, and they had this huge battle against the forces of Brutus and Cassius, and that was the battle in Philippi. Cassius and Brutus are killed in the battle, and Mark Anthony and Octavian won. So after it's over, Octavian, who was only 20 years old, he headed back to Rome, but Mark Anthony went down to Alexandria, Egypt. Now, I asked the early service, why did he go to, to Egypt? And as I was thinking about this yesterday, I remembered the words of that great theologian, Jimmy Buffett, who said, some people say there's a woman to blame, and that's exactly the case, and her name was Cleopatra. And so Mark Anthony goes to Egypt, because of Cleopatra. He's madly in love with her, and Julius Caesar had married her and had a baby by her. Well, Caesar, Julius Caesar's dead now, so Mark Anthony goes, and somebody at the, at the, after the first service said, I said that Mark Anthony married Cleopatra, and they said, I don't think they were married. Okay, they were an item. 
Okay, Mark Anthony and Julius and Mark Anthony and Cleopatra are an item, and uh, he goes. They have three children, and they declared he declared her. Mark Anthony did declared her to be the queen of kings, and her son by Julius Caesar to be the king of kings. And uh, he named the three sons as rulers of half of the Roman Empire. Well, word gets back to Rome. And Octavian hears of this, and he's furious because he says, I'm the ruler over the, over the empire. I'm the, the monarch. So he gets an army together to go and fight against Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony has an army, huge battle on the Aeonian Sea. And it, you look back, and if you read about it, it, it's one of the most important battles in history. It's called the Battle of Actium. And it was in 31 B.C. Julius Caesar had died in 44 B.C. Now it's 31. So it's 13 years later. Mark Anthony has this huge army, 60,000 troops, 480 ships. Octavian has 80,000 troops, 400 ships. Both armies have 12,000 horsemen each. So there's this huge battle, and it culminates with a sea battle. And Mark Anthony is losing And Cleopatra sees that he's losing, and so she leaves, hurries back to Alexandria with 60 ships. The battle is lost. Mark Anthony follows her back to Egypt. He gets real down. Octavian is won. And he knows that Octavian cannot allow him to live. So he goes back to Alexandria with his troops, and there's a battle there. As Octavian comes and Octavian wins, Mark Anthony hears that Cleopatra is dead, so he takes a knife. Um, somebody explained this in great detail to me at the, uh, at the brunch, uh, which didn't mean to ruin the food, but he kills himself. He tries to commit himself. He runs himself into a, a sword, knife-type thing, and it's a mortal wound. He doesn't die instantly, and they drag his body, drag him over to where the queen is. He dies in her arms, so the story says. She realizes it's over. She calls for it. She knows Octavian's going to take her back to Rome, humiliate her. She calls for her maids to bring her the fruit basket with poisonous snakes. Takes one of the, you know the story. She takes one of the poisonous snakes, holds it to her breast. She dies. So Cleopatra and Mark Anthony are finished. They're gone now. Okay? They're out of the story. Octavian goes back to Rome. It's 31 B.C. And we begin the Roman Empire at that time. He is the supreme. He is the first citizen of the Roman Empire. And it's very, very interesting because, uh, or that in 8 B.C., Octavian had the Roman Senate change the name of the month Quintilus to July to honor Julius Caesar. And he also had the name, his name changed from Octavian to Augustus Caesar, the August 1, and he had them change the name of the month Sextilis, which was the 8th, to August in honor of himself. And so that's how we got our basic calendar, but in 15, I'm going to just, in a parenthesis here, in 1582, Pope Gregory the 13th came up with a Gregorian calendar, which included leap years, and that's essentially what we use now. And now I know what you're thinking. What in the world does this have to do with Christmas, Chip? Well, trust me, just hang there for just a minute. It's interesting because God had spoken through one of his prophets around 700 B.C. When we read earlier from Isaiah, that was about the same time period. But this prophet's name was Micah. And God had told Micah to write down a message to his people, to the Jewish people, 
uh, so they would know what to do. And God had said, I'm going to send a ruler who's going to be born in a little obscure village called Bethlehem. Now, this was 700 years before it happened. They'd try that on for size. Sit down this afternoon and think out 700 years to the year 2716 and think about where your relatives are going to be born. Not, not the country, not, not even the continent, the very town. Well, that's what that message from Micah was uh, that God gave to him, is that the Messiah, the Redeemer, who'd been prophesied about from the, the early chapters of Genesis, was going to be born in this little nondescript village, and it was well known. When, when Herod, after the wise men had come, when he called his, his wise people, the leaders, and said, where is the Messiah to be born? They all said, Bethlehem. Non-issue. Uh, no, no doubt about it. It's supposed to be Bethlehem. It's clear from the Old Testament. Now you think, well, um, I'm skeptical about all that. I, I, I was teaching a class of, of, of skeptics uh, uh, about three years ago, and most have been raised in atheistic backgrounds, and and I said, well, what do you make of these prophecies? I mean, there are hundreds, hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled very specifically in Jesus. And, and a pretty common answer today, it's not an educated answer, to be honest with you, not to sound insulting, but was, well, those were written in after Jesus lived. After he lived, they went and wrote in to the Old Testament where he'd be born. I said, the problem is the Greek version of the Old Testament was finished about 400 years before Christ came. That's called the Septuagint. It was in print in the way that they printed, but it was complete. So all this was already there. It couldn't have been written in later. Um, all right, side point. So here was this prophecy. And God said to Micah, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So God had set forth his prophecy about the Messiah, the anointed one. God had told his people Israel that the Messiah would come to them. He'd be a ruler. He told them that 700 years before it happened. Well, how would, bring this about, would God bring this about? He decided he would elevate the person of Octavian to the position of supreme ruler of the Roman Empire to accomplish what he wanted accomplished. You say, can God do that? Is he really that powerful? Daniel 4 says the Most High rules the kingdom of men, gives it to whom he will, sets it over the lowliest of men. So why did God raise up Octavian to be the monarch, the ruler of the Roman Empire? Because he had set forth, God had set forth a decree hundreds of years before that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So what did he have to do with it? Well, there's other problems. Joseph and Mary did not live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth, 70 miles to the north. It would be like Atlanta and Macon. So there was no reason for them to go to Bethlehem. His business, Joseph's business, his carpentry business was there. I mean, they, they, they wouldn't have thought of, of leaving there to, to move away. Luke tells us, A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Who made that decree? Our old buddy Octavian. Caesar Augustus. He sends forth a decree for a census. Why a census? Because he needed to know how many people there were and where they lived, and they used that information for conscription for the army, for taxation purposes, and so forth. He needed to know how many people there were. 
And so Luke chapter 2 tells us, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So God has said 750 years before the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and Joseph and Mary, who would never think about leaving where they were to go to Bethlehem, they traveled the 70 miles, which would have taken them about a week to get there. Now, why has God done this? And that's why I read the Galatians passage. It tells us in verse 4, to redeem us. The fullness of time God sent forth his son, born of a woman, for the purpose of redeeming us. Now, we don't use the word redemption a whole lot today. If, you've got a, if you happen to get a gift card to iTunes, and you go on iTunes this Christmas, and it'll say redeem card or Amazon or something like that. Now, when I was growing up, my generation and a little bit older, we knew we had, we had a, a building in our hometown called the Redemption Center. And it wasn't a mission. It's where you took your S&H green stamps. Okay, back then when you shopped for groceries, this was kind of the precursor to the rewards programs today. You got stamps. And they weren't stamps that were self-adhesive. You had to lick these babies. I mean, my mom would bring these. It's amazing that I don't have some sort of... It's amazing I'm alive. I licked hundreds of those things. You had a page, you could put 50 ones on that page, you could put five tens on that page, or you could put one 50. I was always looking for the 50. Because you'd fill up the book, and then you could take the book to the Redemption Center, or a lot of books, and you could get merchandise. And it might be that, well, my first tennis racket, a wooden Wilson Pancho Gonzalez tennis racket, <laughs> came with S- from S&H Green Stamps. We redeemed them. My first guitar had been purchased with S&H green stamps and so we redeemed those you would take those and you would you would buy that so to speak you buy that item that you wanted with that that's that's redemption well it also took on the word redemption took on a meaning of buying a slave's freedom where a person in slavery you purchase their freedom you redeem them said you're free now no you're no longer a slave so this word in the bible is packed with meaning. We all have to be freed from slavery to sin, and the price paid was his son. That leads us to what we call around here the bad news, good news, and that is that we go back in time to the early chapters of Genesis, to our ancient foreparents. God created them, Adam and Eve, and they had five senses, just like you and I have. They could taste, touch, see, hear, and smell, but they had a sixth sense. It was a spiritual dimension of sorts that literally enabled them to walk and talk with God. And they loved God when we read the early parts of the Bible. They were created to do so, and that's why they loved him. But something happened. They disobeyed God. There was a command he gave them, and they broke it. They committed a crime against God, and as a result of that, they died. They didn't die physically, not for a long, long time, but that day they died spiritually. That, that sixth sense that they had had, that communion with God, now was broken. And you and I, the Bible says, are born in the condition they ended up. We are born spiritually dead. And we've committed crimes against God. And he says the punishment or the wages for such is death. So it's, it's just natural to almost all of us to think that, well, if there is a God, surely I can be good enough or do enough or perform enough to where he will accept me. And, and he will see that if I just try hard enough. Or, or he'll see the motivations. He'll, he'll see that I meant to do right, and he'll accept me. 
But the truth is, there's nothing. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. That all the good deeds in all the world cannot overcome our two problems of sin and death. So thankfully, God in his love and his mercy, he sends his son Jesus, as Galatians tells us there. Christ himself said that he always did those things that are pleasing to his father. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And then he allowed himself to be arrested and tried and convicted and nailed to a Roman cross as a substitute for others. When he was on that cross, God took my sin and he put my sin on him. And he punished him in my place. And he made a full payment for the sin. He died on that cross. In the words of Sinclair Ferguson, Jesus undid everything Adam did and did everything Adam failed to do. So his body was taken down from a cross, it was, it was placed in a tomb. His enemies thought, well, that's the end of that. But three days later, he rose physically from the grave. Death could not keep its hold on him because he paid the penalty. And before he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples to go into all the world and to tell people about this gift of eternal life. So have you received this gift? To do so, you must believe that Jesus is... God, the Son, that he was perfect, that he died for you, that you cannot make yourself right with God through your own efforts, that when he died, God the Father put your sins on him and punished him in your place, and now you turn from going your own way and living for yourself and turning toward him and living for him. When that happens, you are enabled to love God. Why? Because Galatians tells us you've been adopted. You have been adopted into his family as his sons and daughters. So that's the meaning of Christmas redemption. Have you been redeemed? Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your son prophesied over the centuries. And, um, and we thank you that he is still alive today, that you are at work in hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take your order of service and let's... Stand and sing together, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. <laughs> 